0: Could life be spread through the universe by panspermia? What big ground-based telescopes am I looking forward to? And how big are the Lagrange points? All this and more in this week's question show. Welcome to the question show. Your questions, my answers, wherever you are across my channel. If a question pops into your brain, just write it down. I will gather them up and I will answer them here. All right, let's get into the questions. Aaron Calhoun, what do you think about life being spread by panspermia? I'm just a journalist, not a scientist, so I have no opinion about whether or not life is being spread by panspermia, but scientists do have opinions about whether or not life is being spread by panspermia. And so the idea of panspermia is that you could take an asteroid and you could smash it into a planet. And then the debris from that asteroid strike would go into orbit and potentially even go on an escape trajectory that would take it out into, say, a solar orbit. And then that debris, those rocks could land on the atmosphere of another planet like Venus or Mars, and then enter the atmosphere and then land. And we see this. I mean, we find meteorites from Mars here on Earth. So we know that rocks can make the journey from world to world here inside the solar system. But the question is, can life join in on this journey. And so when those giant asteroids crash into Earth, and they smash up all this debris, there's absolutely life getting dragged out into space dinosaurs are going into orbit when the asteroid strikes. And so potentially hardy microbes, nematodes, water bears, you know, are are inside these rocks, and they're protected from the radiation of space. And they can make the journey and then they can land. And the crazy part is that we know that the impact of an asteroid and then kicking up the debris is actually gentle enough that, you know, we can see that the rocks have survived, they don't get immediately atomized. And so in theory, life forms inside those rocks, which there's life inside all kinds of rocks here on Earth can make it to orbit. And that when those rocks Pass through the atmosphere. Yeah, they, they can heat up on the outside but they can be kept cool in the interior. And so in theory, life can make every part of this journey. And so one of the big theories is that life is traveling from world to world throughout the solar system. And it's more likely that life would be going from the lighter worlds with the lower gravity to the worlds with more gravity. So it'd be more likely that you would get life going from Mars to Earth than from Earth to Mars. And so this idea of panspermia is that life on Earth actually started from somewhere else. Possibly Mars. Um, And that's great. I mean, you know, like in every part of this theory has been looked at and considered and seems reasonable, but you're missing these big pieces, which is was there ever life on Mars? And that we don't know the answer to. And so until we get like a proper sample return mission, or really human explorers on Mars with a really powerful laboratory, then you're able to retrieve samples, look through them search for life and find out if there's life on Mars. And if you do find life on Mars, then you can search to find out is there a common ancestor. And if there is a common ancestor, then you can figure out when life shifted from Mars to Earth or vice versa. And there's like an even bigger extension to this idea, which is that you could have life going from solar system to solar system. I mean, we saw Oumuamua passing through the solar system, we saw comet Borisov, we know that there are 10s of 1000s of asteroids of all sizes that have gotten here from other solar systems, and they're just passing through the solar system. Right now, they have inevitably crashed onto Earth. And so then the question is, could life that was kicked up in one solar system be transported and survive the 10s of millions of years that it would take inside an asteroid to reach a target destination. And the answer is, don't know, (laughs) maybe, Uh, again, it's, it's that question of Mars, but even more complicated. But I, I really love the idea that every world in the Milky Way that is inhabited by life, is leaving this trail of debris, like a cometary tail behind it, that contains meteorites that contain life, and then other planets are passing through those tails, catching some of those meteorites, they're landing on the planet, and life is spreading from world to world. And it, you know, one extreme possibility of this idea is that there really is only one common ancestor in the entire Milky Way, and that all life that, that it's such a rare event that all life in the Milky Way is descended from this one planet that figured out life. Um, who knows? You know, it's fun to speculate, but you know, more data needed. I'm sure you've noticed the Star Trek planetary name that appeared above my shoulder on the first question. Of course, you did. How could you miss it? It's so obvious. You're like, what is that Star Trek planet doing over? Fraser shoulder. Well, here's why Uh, we put up a different Star Trek planet name throughout this entire question show, you will watch all of the questions. And then you will choose carefully the one that you thought was the best or the best answer or the thing that you just enjoyed the most. And so we will then add up all of the votes and we will celebrate it the next week, you just put the word into the comments down below. And that's what we count up. So last week, the winning vote was smack dab. Can any extremophiles on Earth survive if we brought them to Mars? So thank you, everyone, for voting, telling us which you thought was the best. And we'll do this again this week. So just watch the end to see the code words. Connor Arroyo, what Earth-based telescopes are you most looking forward to? So those of you who've watched this channel for a while know the big telescopes that I'm really looking forward to but there's like two main telescopes that you should be keeping your eye on for the next couple of years. The first of course is the Vera Rubin Observatory. This is the telescope that is almost complete. And we should be seeing first light at the end of this year. And the purpose of the Vera Rubin Observatory is to image the entire Southern night sky every couple of nights. It's an enormous mirror. It has probably the largest digital camera that's ever been made. And it will take these really deep, really sensitive images of the entire sky. And then three days later, it'll come back and take another picture of it. And then three days later. And so what you're gonna get is the ability to compare image after image after image. And so you'll get say a 100 images over the course of a year of the same spot in the sky. And then you can find Oh, you notice that an asteroid is moving through the field of view or planet nine is moving through the field of view, or you see supernovas go off or all kinds of things. And then the most exciting part are the anomalies, the things that we've never even thought of things that have never been observed, the things that the universe was doing when we weren't looking. And Veer Rubin will give us those and as soon as it comes online, like next, we're going to all wonder like, when do we get one in the northern hemisphere, but we start with the southern when do we get a space one, but Veer Rubin is going to be a total game changer, there's going to be like this constant stream of live data, of all of the interesting things that Veer Rubin is finding. So like my plan is to bring together a bunch of astronomers. And then we'll just watch the data stream. And then as things are found that are interesting, we'll talk about what they are. Oh, it just found a supernova. Oh, it just found a type one A supernova. Oh, it just found an asteroid. Oh, it just found planet nine. And we'll be able to talk about those like in real time as these things are being discovered. And I'm really excited for that telescope. The other one that I'm really excited about is the European extremely large telescope. And this is a 39 meter telescope that's being built in Chile. And it's ludicrously big. No, wait, it is overwhelming. No, it is very large. No, extremely large. So uh, people always get a like laugh out of the naming scheme that the European Southern Observatory gives their telescopes right there. They have the very large telescope. Now comes the extremely large telescope. They were planning to build the overwhelmingly large telescope, but um, but that was canceled. So we get the extremely large, and that is just going to be a monster. And so some of the things like it's going to be able to do everything that say the very large telescope can do, it's going to have a really powerful adaptive optic system, it's going to be able to do spectroscopy, it's going to be able to image star systems, it's going to be able to detect Earth sized planets orbiting around sun like worlds directly It'll be able to block the light from the star and to be able to image the faint planets that are nearby. First, a few close candidates. And like, that's a revolution to be able to do that and like be able to detect the atmosphere on those worlds. Now, it might not be as powerful as the upcoming habitable worlds observatory, but it still is going to be such a powerful telescope compared to anything else we have both on the ground and in space. And for quite a while, the most powerful telescope that humanity has available to it is going to be the extremely large telescope. And that's coming out in 2027. And so we're just three years away from this monster telescope getting first light as well. And that's just two. I mean, there's the giant Magellan telescope, 30 meter telescope. There is the square kilometer array, which is coming out, which is going to be just, it's going to revolutionize radio astronomy as well. So there are a just a whole group of mega telescopes coming out in just the next couple of years that are going to change our understanding of the universe from the ground. And you don't have to go to space. JK software just found your channel about an hour ago. Follow up question from last week. What would it take to send telescopes to the solar gravitational lens with the current technology? Welcome to the channel. Uh, Great question. Uh, So, the solar gravitational lens, this is the place, it's about 500 to 1,000 astronomical units away from the sun, where the gravity of the sun becomes a natural telescope lens that allows you to magnify anything that's on the other side. And so, you could use the solar gravitational lens with just like a one meter telescope, could be able to see a megapixel image of an Earth-sized world orbiting around a sun like star. Like we can see mountains and forests and cities and all that kind of stuff. But 500 astronomical units away from the sun, that is far. Like that is the kinds of distances that the Voyagers are still struggling to reach. And they've been at it for like, 50 years. And so you're going to need something a lot faster. Now I've done an interview here on the channel with Dr. Slava he's the person who is proposing the solar gravitational lens. And he is also proposing the solution. And what he suggests is a solar sail that you take a solar sail and you bring it really close to the sun and you take advantage of this trick called the old birth maneuver, where you get this gigantic acceleration when you're really close to the sun, the sun is accelerating the solar sail, and you can get it going really, really fast. And according to Dr. Turashev, you should be able to reach the solar gravitational lens within say 20 years, which I know sounds like a long time. But you know, are you patient enough to wait for an image of a exoplanet that's that good? There are a lot of other ideas. And of course, we're reporting on this at Universe Today all the time. There are mag sails that use the charged particles coming from the sun to accelerate to really high velocities. There are light sails where you take a laser and you point it at a solar sail and accelerate to enormous velocities. These are the ones that are proposing that you could go to say Proxima Atari at 20% the speed of light, you could definitely get out to the solar gravitational lens, if you wanted to. There are new kinds of um you know, fusion drives, fission nuclear rockets. Um, there's plenty of ideas. And so uh, really, it's gonna be a matter of people being willing to test out and try these really new propulsion systems. And like these have value across everything, like faster ways to get to Mars faster ways to get to the outer solar system, could we get to Neptune, and have it not take 20 years, what well, could we do it in five years, three years. So these new ideas for propulsion systems, are really important, and they're going to just play a role in all of the kinds of space exploration that's planned in the future. And one of those, I hope, will be the solar gravitational lens. John Vital, does a supermassive black hole have a maximum size? If so, what happens if it exceeds it? No, supermassive black holes do not have a maximum size. You could feed a supermassive black hole all the matter in the universe, all the energy in the universe, all the dark matter in the universe, and it would be perfectly happy with that and ask for seconds grave spinner. With your position on the Fermi Paradox, do you think that money spent on habitable planet searches should be best spent in other areas? Absolutely not. So for those of you who don't know, my position on the Fermi Paradox is that I think we're alone in the universe, that I don't see any evidence of any life out there. And I feel like we should have seen some. And so either like we're the only life in the observable universe or the first life in the observable universe. And partly it's because like all the other solutions just sound so awful to me so horrible, that I don't, I don't even think about them. You know, the Greek filter. <laughs> but the, does that mean that I think we should not search for habitable planet? Absolutely not. Like, like the whole point with science, is you could have a hypothesis, my hypothesis is that we're alone in the universe. But you need to do science, you need to check. And like think about the consequences if we are the only intelligent life in the universe, or really the only life in the universe. You've got this gigantic observable universe, 100 billion stars in the Milky Way, 2 trillion galaxies in the universe. And the only place that life formed is in this one tiny rock in this one galaxy. And then here we are, we showed up. And, and we extracted all these resources, and we came up with this amazing technology, but we failed to spread life into the cosmos. And then we go extinct. And then the octopuses don't have any coal to burn, then the sun heats up the planet. And then life is gone from the earth. And then that's that. And, and the universe had this chance for having life, and we blew it. And it was on our watch, it was our fault. And so I think that the step one is we do an exhaustive search to find out if we are truly alone in the universe. Yeah, that's, that's just like my opinion, man. That's not like a scientific fact. And you should never just like rest on your opinion, you should go and do science to find out the truth, find out what nature really knows about how much life there is in the universe. And if we aren't alone, then great then the responsibility is not on us to make sure that life survives in the universe, that we'll let the aliens do it, it's not our problem, we can go back to doing what we do. But if we are alone, then then wouldn't that suck if, if we had a shot and we didn't take it? And part of it is us not taking good care of this planet, about not maintaining Earth as the best place in the universe for life as we know it, And part of it about us developing our technology and getting off Earth and exploring and starting to push out into other star systems. I think we have a responsibility. I think that that trees are better than rocks. And so I think the universe is made better by the presence of life. And so I think it's our responsibility to spread out into the universe if it turns out that we're alone. And if we're not alone, then we'll be good neighbors. Promise. JK video, your thoughts on why China is not invited to participate in NASA and or ESA projects. I'm not sure what the rules are with the European Space Agency. But with NASA, they have a regulation in US that says that China and the US are not allowed to work together on aerospace projects. Is it Itar. Anyway. um, And this is sort of one face. This is one sided. So this is the US saying that China is not able to participate. And that means that China can't send astronauts to the International Space Station, China can't supply parts to US rockets, things like that. And like, I'm sure there's various carve outs for different kinds of technology and using drones out at Cape Canaveral and things like that. But when it comes to the actual technology, China is not allowed to be part of it. But why does it exist? I mean, that's a political conversation. You're gonna have to talk to Congress and find out exactly why they wrote those laws. And I'm not sure how well they extend to the European Space Agency. I'm pretty sure there are collaborations between the European Space Agency and China. And there's also one on one collaborations with China on a bunch of projects. I mean, China said they're planning on inviting International astronauts to their space station shortly. And you get a lot of collaboration with some of their scientific instruments and missions. So, for example, the FAST telescope, American astronomers and European astronomers use the 500 meter telescope in China all the time for research and a lot of other stuff. There's a lot of international collaborations on the science side. So, you know, I think it's a fairly specific carve out on exactly what China is not allowed to supply. And it's always less than ideal when people don't work together. And what you've got as a response from China is a gigantic homegrown rocket industry. Uh, They launch as many rockets in China as pretty much the rest of the world combined. I mean, they, they almost launch as many rockets as SpaceX does. They have their own reusable space plane, like the x37b. They're working on reusable booster rockets, like the Falcon nine, there was a test like today, where they tested out a reusable rocket um, booster prototype. But they've got a bigger version coming probably next year, they're going to try and actually launch to orbit. And they're working on their version of fully reusable two stage rockets like Starship, but they look similar or they look different. And there's like dozens of companies in China that are doing this kind of thing. And so what you get when you exclude them is a completely homegrown, disconnected rocket industry. And I don't think it's a great thing. Like I think you want to have more collaboration, more cooperation, things like the International Space Station, where you've got Russia and the US that were effectively enemies coming together to build a space station. And they're up there right now, um, peacefully doing science and being friends. And I think it's always really important to do that. And you're going to get this completely independent space exploration plans from China. You know, they've been retrieving samples from the moon. Then they've got another sample return mission coming. They're building a new heavy lift rocket. They are building a new lunar lander. They're building a new crew capsule to both deliver astronauts to the Chinese space station, as well as to carry astronauts to and from the moon. And their plan is in 2029, they're going to send humans to the moon. And NASA just slipped to 2026. And wouldn't it be great if there was a research base on the moon that was staffed by scientists and astronauts from the entire planet from every country working in friendship, a man can dream. So uh, I think partnership and collaboration and scientific community is always better than the alternative. But I understand there are like politics and global diplomacy issues, and saber rattling and all kinds of stuff that I don't think about. I don't make the laws. I just want everybody to get along. If you want to support the work we do at Universe Today, consider joining our Patreon club. Your support lets us have a minimum of ads and no sponsorship messages. Patrons get no ads on university.com for life. Want the extra parts of the live stream that aren't in this edited version? It's about twice as long. You can sign up for a special patron-only podcast feed and get the overtime segments, as well as other special behind-the-scenes episodes, including our monthly patron-only question show. Thanks to everyone who has already subscribed, and welcome to the recent newcomers. Shoe Along, Stephen Silber, Tim Somervale, Locutus of Zork, Intrepid Space Monkey, Ari Buggy, Arturus Cavallis, Alan J. Baden, Joseph Bruce Nabosny, Abe Kingston, and Patrick F. Join the club at patreon.com universe today. Noor Ahmed. Hey, Fraser, I have a question about astronomy communication itself. Has information about space research become more truthful or more muddy now than perhaps 30 years ago? Now, 30 years is just before my time in doing astronomy communication. Like I started 25 years ago, so I don't know what was happening, but I remember finding out about, say... Comet Shoemaker-Levy 9 crashing into Jupiter. I remember Sojourner landing on Mars and watching all that. And that was just a couple of years before I got started. Kind of got me inspired to start. And back in the day, there was a much deeper trust in scientific institutions. Like out at Cape Canaveral, there were trucks for all of the major TV stations, and there was wall-to-wall coverage of rocket launches. And then over time, less and less people showed up, and less and less trucks, and it you know, sometimes feels like a ghost town when you're out at Kennedy Space Center. And you would get, say, at the astronomical conventions, you would get people giving press conferences, and you have a bunch of press releases that would go out on the wire, and then people would pick them up, and they would report on them. And the coverage was pretty in line with what was coming out of the astronomy conferences, and it was done by the mainstream media. And there were dedicated journalists who specialized at these big agencies. So like think about say, Miles O'Brien, who used to be the space journalist at CNN, uh, who's now found a great home over at PBS. Uh, or think about Alan Boyle, who led the space coverage over at NBC, um, or MSNBC. And so you've got like all of these traditional media, and then they are laying off their space journalists. And so they're making the science journalists do the space journal, and then they're laying off their science journalists. So they're making their weather journalists and their nature and their environmental reporters do these stories. And so they just don't understand all of the nuance and all of the details the way that the people who specialized and focused on it did. And at the same time, you've got the rise of smaller independent organizations like like us like universe today, like space.com, as well as people who are just doing direct reporting. I mean, think about say, the everyday astronaut or think about the folks at does Padre or, uh, you know, some of the other channels on YouTube that are specializing in these really detailed areas, you've got scientists who used to go through some, you know, a public Relations official to get their workout are now just being able to connect with people directly. Look at Dr. Becky, look at David Kipping with Cool Worlds Lab, uh, Sabina Hasenfelder. You know you've got Brian Keenan. Like you've got a lot of people who are educated in this and are also going out to a direct audience and explaining the results and helping people understand what's going on. And so I don't think it's really simple. Like on the one hand, the mainstream media has lost the ball and doesn't really do a great job. You've got a rise of clickbait and people just telling you and warning you and freaking you out about asteroids that are going to be coming relatively close to the earth and doing a sort of really bad job of explaining what are pretty mundane results in in sort of terrifying terms. But on the other hand, you've got this really great specialized industry of space journalists. And so I think if I was to name people right now that I trust, and then compare that to the people that I would have trusted 25 years ago, it's probably 10 times more people who I think are really good at space journalism, than back then. And so overall, the research is or the the reporting is way better but also there's a lot of noise in the system and i think it's going to become harder and harder for people to know which voices they can trust and which voices are just trying to get them to click on articles and and th- this is something that i've i've been really struggling with which is how do we how do we be a trusted source of news in this Thing like what I want is when you see us putting out a new story, you're like, "Oh, it's universe today." Okay, great. Then this is real, right? Uh, that's what I hope you see. And then when you see one of the videos on YouTube, then you're like, "Okay, great." I was waiting for Fraser to tell me what the scientific consensus is on this issue, and so I think things are going to get weird in the coming years, you know, we see a lot of mighty information on just the web in general, we see a lot of people with access to grind, sowing misinformation, trying to confuse people. And that didn't exist in the past So you didn't get this, this disinformation that was coming out at the same degree. So it's going to be interesting, find people that you trust and, and respect and hang on to them for dear life. Michael Burke. What is the volume of space encompassed by the effects of a Lagrange point? How big can we make the craft? So Lagrange points, these are the five stable points that you get when you have a very massive object orbiting an even more massive object. There are five Lagrange points between The Earth and the Sun, five between the Earth and the Moon, five between the Sun and Jupiter, and so on. Now, three of the Lagrange points, the ones that line up L1, two, and three, are unstable. And so imagine them as like the tippy tippy top of a mountain and as long as you perch up at the top of the mountain you're not going to need very much energy to remain at the top of that mountain but as soon as you start to roll down the side of that mountain you're going to need more and more energy to get yourself back up to the top of the mountain and so all of the energy that you spend is is pushing yourself back up onto the mountain, right? With the L4 and the L5 point, they're like the bottom of a valley that once you get into the Lagrange point, and you're in that area, it actually takes energy to get out of it again, to go somewhere else. And so you're just going to end up in that place, effectively forever. And you're asking how big are they? Well, Lagrange points aren't points. Because everything is an ellipse and so when you think about the earth's orbit around the sun it is not a perfect circle it is an ellipse the sun is farther from us sometimes the sun is closer from us than sometimes and so think instead of the lagrange point as a lagrange blob not only that but you have the interactions of say the moon that's orbiting around us you have the interactions of jupiter which is pretty enormous plus Saturn plus all of that. And so it's constantly warping and changing the sizes and shapes of these Lagrange blobs, And that's why you can't just go and put a spacecraft perfectly at the Lagrange point or just hang there forever. The point is moving, the blob is shifting, you could average out all of the gravity of all the places in the solar system. And it now turns out that the Lagrange point is 100 kilometers to your left. And so you have to sort of keep yourself Oriented as close as you can to the center. And with the L4 and the L5, they're actually these quite large regions that take up several degrees of the, say, the Earth's orbit around the sun, for example. And so things aren't stuck in this one point inside the L4 point. It's actually just this giant chaotic rolling orbit of objects that are moving around inside this zone. And the shape and the size of it just depends on all of the gravity of all the objects that are interacting, as well as, you know, the mass of the thing that you put in there, there's a lot of variables. And so you know, how big can you make the craft, your spacecraft has to be of negligible mass compared to the smaller object. And so for example, if you have the Earth and the sun, something that is of negligible mass to the Earth might be a asteroid that is several kilometers across. But if you wanted to have one that is orbiting around, say the L4 point L5 point of the moon and the Earth, now you have to have something that is smaller, something that is maybe hundreds of meters across. And so we see this distribution, like when you go out to Jupiter's Lagrange points, you can see comets and Trojan objects and asteroids that are jumbled up in this area that are hundreds of kilometers across. And yet Earth's Lagrange points for or Sun Lagrange points hold stuff that's just a few kilometers across. And I don't don't think people have found any objects around trapped in the moons Lagrange point around the Earth. So it all depends. Rogue gaming interstellar swarm mission. Instead of sending many probes with a large signal together, what about spread out from us to Proxima Centauri and then relay the info? So I mean, this idea comes up a lot, you know, if you're going to send a string of probes from us to Proxima Centauri, then the probes could relay the information all the way back along the chain. And you could get a much better bandwidth than individual probes that are attempting to send data like a few bits per week, or this swarm idea that I just did the interview with Marshall Eubanks about this, that the entire swarm acts like one signal that's sending at the same time. So the problem, of course, is that you don't want to break the chain, you can't break the chain. And so the whole reason why you're sending 1000s of these spacecraft is for redundancy that a piece of interstellar debris could take out any one of them. And it doesn't really matter. You know, you could lose 1%, 5%, 10%. It's fine. But if you've got these individual probes, and they are designed to communicate with another probe, but maybe, you know, maybe there's some redundancy, they could, they could skip one slot and get to the next one or the one after that, you get two, three, four probes get taken out in a line, and now the chain is broken. And now there's no communication to or from Proxima Centauri. And so this idea of using a swarm of small craft, communicating in sync fixes a lot of problems in communication for really far distances. Save the planet. Fraser plans or progress on an up-to-date space station to replace the current ISS. It seems that it should be of the utmost importance and the clock is ticking. So right now, the International Space Station is still operating fine and there's a ton of astronauts on board. But the plan is probably to retire the space station by the end of the decade. Now, people are saying that they're going to bring it down, you know, 2028, maybe the 2030. But who knows, you know, people may change their minds, find some funding, keep it going. But at some point, it's going to be time for the International Space Station to be crashed into the planet into the great the ocean graveyard of the Pacific. Anyway, harmlessly. And so what have you got left, you've got the Chinese space station, which is fairly new, and is going to be operating probably for a couple of decades with additions and enhancements and new modules and new crew swaps. So that's going to be working in low Earth orbit. NASA is shifting its focus to the Deep Space Gateway, that is going to be their space station that is out in a orbit that sort of takes it close and far from the moon. And this is going to be testing out keeping humans alive in deep space. Would NASA love to have a space station in low Earth orbit and the deep space gateway? Absolutely. But they don't get that kind of funding. And so they had to choose. And since the plan is to send humans to the moon, they're having to build technology that supports the plan. You've also got private space stations. And so there are plans to dock a private space station module to the International Space Station. And when the time is right, you may get parts of the space station detached into a new private station, and then the rest of it is deorbited. That's the plan right now. Now, there's a lot of really great ideas, and we report on them all the time about inflatable space stations, and rotating space stations that would test out artificial gravity in space, and various private space station ideas, But right now, there's nothing that is absolutely concrete that is for sure going to happen except for the Chinese Space Station and the Deep Space Gateway. Hooded top. If all the scientists in the world came together and really worked on a faster interstellar travel method, would it not be better for us in the long run? Have you ever read Project Hail Mary? This is the new book by Andy Weir. You get that example where there is this existential crisis for planet Earth, and so they need to develop an interstellar mission. ASAP. And so they do. And you get like just there's no limit to what people are able to do to accomplish this goal. And it's, it's cool. It's great. The reality is, is that there is no great benefit to an interstellar mission for us today. Like yes, we could get some scientific questions answered more quickly than we could, you know, if we waited longer for the technology to come along all we can do is satisfy our curiosity. Like that's the only thing that interstellar travel gives us is satisfying our curiosity about the universe. Can we get some pictures up close of Proxima Centauri, that would be cool. But it doesn't give us any practical value. And that's fine. Like that's, that's curiosity, that's exploration, it's what humans do. So uh, in the long run, I don't, I don't think so. I think that this technology will be developed at the pace that it gets developed as the as people see the need. And Although there are certain scientific questions that I would love to see the answers to, I'm patient. So Robert Heimarsch, I realize every star is different, but how accurate is the Goldilocks zone relative to a star? So the Goldilocks zone, the other term for this is the habitable zone. And this is a region around the star where on the inner side of this habitable zone, water can't exist because the radiation is too strong and it will boil the water away on the surface of a planet and on the outer part of that liquid water can exist that the average temperature on the planet is going to be frozen and you'll just have an ice ball. And then in between there is the potential for liquid water on the surface of a world. But it is a really kind of mushy distinction. So here in the solar system, for example, the habitable zone around the sun extends from just inside the orbit of Venus includes Earth and goes out beyond the orbit of Mars. And so if the atmosphere of Venus was significantly different, if the composition of Mars, the size, the mass, and the atmosphere were significantly different, you could fine tune both Venus and Mars to get a habitable world kinda like Earth. Now, it might be a little warmer on Venus, really hard to sort of completely get rid of that excess heat. And it might be kind of chillier on Mars, but you could definitely get liquid water on the surface of both worlds. And so it's more about the, the composition of the planet and about the, you know, the atmosphere of the world. And even now, astronomers are starting to come up with other scenarios, different kinds of atmospheres that totally change what the habitable Zone is around the star. You look at, say, these Haitian worlds, these water worlds with a thick hydrogen atmosphere, and they could maintain a liquid water surface well out into the asteroid belt, almost all the way to Jupiter. Uh, They could have liquid water on the surface when they're orbiting around a, you know, some rogue planet floating in space. And then, of course, you get the ice worlds, the ones that are going to have liquid water underneath a thick shell of ice like Europa Enceladus. There could be life there. And so it is a really just rough sketch that just says, you know, habitable zone here. Let's look for planets there. It doesn't mean that anything that's in the habitable zone is going to be habitable. And it doesn't mean that things outside of the habitable zone won't be habitable. It's just a good place to start. Can there be liquid water on the surface of this world? Yes or no. Floater 81 floats. Why does Starship need fuel transfers to get to the surface of the moon, but Saturn V could do it all in one launch? Reusability. So with the Saturn V, look at first during the Apollo era, you had an enormous amount of budget that was put into the Apollo g- program. I think the entire like Mercury, Gemini, Apollo program in inflation-adjusted dollars was like three hundred and fifty billion dollars. And when you compare that to the kind of budget that say the Artemis missions get, like I think they get a couple of billion dollars a year. So, like 10 times as much funding went to the Apollo era. And so, they could build these enormous rockets and spare no expense to put humans on the moon and show the Russians what we can do. And by we, I mean the Americans. So, in the new era, where there's a fraction of the budget and there's new technology coming along that will allow you to reuse rockets. So, the idea with Starship is the thing launches, flies to space, it's the fuel module right it's the propellant uh tank and then other starships fly up to it or maybe just one flies up to it 15 times 18 times transfers propellant and then the human landing system flies up to the propellant system transfers all the fuel flies out to the moon and then goes into orbit around the moon and then every time astronauts arrive at the moon they get into the lander they go down to the moon they come back up to their capsule, and then they fly home. And so now you don't have to have a separate lander, you've it's done, you've got this lander. yeah, you may have to refuel it from time to time. But we're moving into this era of reusability and still trying to sort out. And so if you want to dispose of the whole system, yeah, you could redo the Saturn V. But if you want something that is more sustainable, reusable, that is moving towards this future infrastructure of humanity living in space, it's going to be this new model. Now, I agree that it is a risky, complicated error, you know, there's all kinds of things that could go wrong. And we're all going to wait to see. And I know a lot of people are gonna be really happy to watch this fail. And I don't think you should I think that you want this to succeed. It's ambitious. But it will be great if it actually does work. The alternative is what the Chinese are doing. Their plan is to build two giant disposable rockets, and one is going to carry their crew capsule, one is going to carry their lander, they're both going to fly to the moon, they're going to meet up, and then they the crew is going to get into the lunar lander down to the surface, come back up, and then fly home in the in the crew capsule. And then that both entire giant rockets will be destroyed, disposed of, and all you're going to end the lander will be destroyed. And all you'll be left with is that little crew capsule that lands back on Earth. And there's no reusability at all like the future like the big plan is that you've got the deep space gateway where is a home to astronauts for a long period of time for weeks at a time maybe months at a time and there is the human landing system that is docking from the moon to the gateway back down to the moon and going back and forth and ferrying astronauts to and from the moon. And maybe there's some propellant factory down on the surface of the moon that's refilling it. And then you've got some ideally reusable, maybe it's starship that is flying from Earth to the moon delivering astronauts, and every part of this system is being reused. And if they can pull that together, if big if, um, then then that's a dramatically new way of doing space exploration. And so I think it's important to look forward, don't look back, think about, you know, what have we learned so far, what's possible, and build the kind of system that supports a long term presence in space. David Friedman, hasn't the space race demonstrated international rivalry can also drive space exploration? I don't doubt that cooperation works too, but might some friendly competition not give us faster moon exploration? I think competition only gets you so far. I mean, we saw the international competition for sending the first satellite into space with Sputnik. We saw the first human to orbit the Earth with Yuri Gagarin. We saw the first docking, first spacewalk, and then we saw the first humans on the moon, and then nothing. Yeah, we saw the space shuttle. Uh, we saw the International Space Station, but it didn't, you know, a lot of people feel like, like space exploration went into the doldrums at that point. Because once the goal has been achieved of setting humans on the moon, then the need for this investment, and this competition is over. When you compare that to historical investments in infrastructure, like when people figured out trains, and were investing like many percent of their entire gross domestic product on building train infrastructure, or fiber optics, or cell networks, things that allow the sort of future use of this kind of resource, then it's around, and it's here to stay as opposed to just a race. Competition is like dirty fuel. And cooperation and just building infrastructure is a much cleaner fuel, in my opinion. And I don't and I like we're seeing it right now. Like there's some stories coming out today about how people in Congress are starting to get a little nervous about how China is progressing in its going to the moon. And so like is that is like that's what it took was for people to start getting freaked out about another country getting to the moon first. Um even though the US have already been to the moon, right? So it doesn't matter. No, I think that's a bad way to align your incentives, you have got to just figure out, what are we curious about? Where do we want to explore next? What do we want our capabilities to become in the future? What infrastructure is important for us to have a more robust and creative economy down the road, um, and sustainable. And I think that's how you should approach it and cooperation, trade, I mean, think about an iPhone, you've got bits and pieces that are coming together from this gigantic international network of parts and places and people to bring this one thing together. And that's couldn't be done without an international cooperation. So no, I think time after time, cooperation is way better than competition. All right, those are all the questions that we got this week. Thank you, everyone, for joining me for the live show, as well as everybody who asked questions in the YouTube comments. Now, we do this show every Monday at 5 p.m. Pacific time. So if you want to like join in the live show and it's like twice as long and you can ask questions and follow-on questions and I chat with the, the chat, uh, we do this every Monday, 5 p.m. Pacific here on the channel. All right, I'm going to shamelessly self-promote uh, something that I'm really excited about in a second. But first, I'd like to thank our patrons. Thanks to Abe Kingston, Andrew M. Gross, Antonio Lofilara, David Giltanen, Dougie Stewart, Dustin Cable, George, Hey Twyla, Jeremy Mattern, Jordan Young, Josh Schultz, Mark Ansis, Stephen Krasaki, and Vlad Shiblin, who support us at the Master of the Universe level and all of our patrons. All your support means the universe to us. Those of you who don't know, I write a weekly email newsletter that goes out to 70,000 people. And we just crossed that line, 70,000 people, which I'm really excited about. So um, I write every Friday, haven't missed it for hundreds and hundreds of weeks. And uh, if you want to get like, it's a deep overview of all of the space news that's come out in the last week, not just the stuff that I talk about in Space Bites, but like 30 to 40 stories that we're covering over at Universe Today, as well as other links to stories that we're not covering, but people who I really respect who are writing on the subject, you should definitely sign up to the newsletter, go to university.com newsletter to sign up, and you can become the 70,000th and first person. All right, thanks. And we'll see you next week.